Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Let me just lay this out. A democracy can't function when the people are not fully informed of what the government's doing. Right? I mean, this is a cornerstone, a key cornerstone idea of democratic governance. This is intrinsic to every functioning democracy around the world. It was first embedded as a point of law in our Constitution. From the beginning of our republic, we have said that the press is functionally the fourth branch of government because it holds everybody accountable. And that's why the fourth estate, the press, was listed as essentially the only private business that's mentioned in the entire Constitution is mentioned in the First Amendment. The Congress shall make no laws abridging freedom of the press. And, you know, the, the corollary to that, obviously, is that the executive branch shall not carry out any actions that abridge the freedom of the press because Congress hasn't made any laws that abridge that, at least in theory. But you can't have a functioning democracy when you can't find out what's going on. And the Trump administration here in Portland went into federal court to claim that it was just fine if their secret police stormtroopers shot at, clearly identified, and hit, by the way, in several occasions, clearly identified and credential reporters who were observing the police riots here in Portland. And so far, multiple reporters have been shot or otherwise injured while simply trying to report on these police riots that we're having here. The mom showed up again last night, and once again, the response was completely inappropriate, in my opinion, completely illegal. Reporters and news organizations are citing the First Amendment protections of the press, but the Trump administration, this is in this court case here in Portland, but the Trump administration is basically saying, we don't give a damn about that. We don't care about the press or the Constitution. Those aren't our issues. We do what Donald Trump tells us to do. They simply shoot at or gas or violently beat with their billy clubs and their batons, basically whoever they want. And this is the argument that they're making in court. We have the right to do this. In addition to this, we've got this leaked memo from the Department of Homeland Security. This was obtained by the Lawfare blog. Benjamin Witz is the editor at Lawfare. The memo is titled, Activities in Furtherance of Protecting American Monuments, Memorial Statues, and Combating Recent Criminal Violence. Right. And Benjamin Witt writes, This memo makes clear that the authorized intelligence activity covers significantly more than just planned attacks on federal personnel or facilities. It also appears to include planned vandalism of Confederate monuments, whether federally owned or not. In other words, the domestic spying operation just kicked into high gear. And if you have ever advocated taking down traitor monuments, monuments to traitor generals, you are probably having your phone tapped. You're probably going to get uh, emails that might provide you with a virus that lets uh, DHS see everything that's going on in your computer. Or maybe they'll just do it through your ISP, your internet service provider. Meanwhile, they're just grabbing people off the streets here in Portland. And they're doing it now. Chad Wolf, the acting secretary of DHS, who has never, Congress has never ratified his position. He has not gone through the approval process in the Senate. 
So you could even argue that he's illegally there. I mean, you know, yes, you need acting people when a role is completely empty, but they're supposed to be filled within a certain period of time. There's no apparent effort to do that on the part of the Trump administration. So he went on Fox News yesterday and he said, and I quote, because we don't have that local support, that local law enforcement support, we're having to go out and proactively arrest individuals. And we need to do that because we need to hold them accountable. Hold them accountable proactively. We need to hold them accountable for crimes they might commit in the future. Then he starts listing all the horrible things that protesters in Portland have done. He said they have they've spray painted on the building. Oh, that's definitely worth, you know, taking somebody's eye out over. Beating them and breaking their bones. Yeah, sure. He claimed that his goon squad was, quote, assaulted by lasers wielded by violent criminals. Right. He posted an image of one of his secret police of their ankle that had a small cut on it. And he said, this is an example of the violence that's being foisted upon us. Uh, this right after his uh, protesters had been filmed gassing and beating a group of local mothers. Honest to God. The fact of the matter is that arresting someone is a process defined by law, defined by the Constitution. And in order to do this, in order to take away someone's freedom, which is a power unique to government, as libertarians and republicans have been pointing out for centuries or for years to take away someone's freedom and kill them or risk killing them this is the most awesome power that government has and it needs to be used very sparingly very carefully and within the context of the law and that's not what they're doing they're not arresting people they're kidnapping them they're not providing them with any documentation or, or their lawyers or any. There's no kind of judicial process. The only guy who's actually in jail that they're holding, who actually had a legal process against him here in Portland, is a homeless guy who's mentally ill, who when the DHS, when he got in the middle of the whole thing and apparently just kind of wandered into it oblivious, they came after him. He grabbed a claw hammer and tried to go back at them. They swarmed him and took him off to jail. The guy is mentally ill. That's it. That's the only person they're holding in jail. All the other so-called arrests have been intimidation practices. They've attacked people who are clearly labeled as medics with giant red crosses on them who are trying to tend to people who've been beaten by the police. They then attack the medics. They attack people because they drew on a sidewalk with chalk. Mark Sumner has a great post about this over at Daily Coast, by the way. Great new format there, too. They're attacking people because they tried to protect other people who were being attacked. They're attacking mothers. They're attacking pregnant women. They're attacking and kidnapping people who simply drove past the area or tried to film what they're doing. You know, if the Trump administration prevails here in Portland in this court challenge where they're saying we can beat gas and shoot at clearly identified members of the press. And frankly, I think the medics should be suing too. If they prevail, and this goes all the way up through the judicial chain to the Supreme Court, and they prevail there with a five to four decision, you can kiss your democracy goodbye. Because all the government has to do in the future is just threaten journalists. And you know, the story just doesn't get reported. This is not how democracy works. And this is not an administration that is embracing the founding values of this country. However imperfectly they were acted out 240 years ago, they're still our founding values. And they are, have, have informed us, you know, hundreds of thousands of times in small and large ways over the years to make this a better country. This is not how that works. This is how autocrats and dictators run things. This may be the largest and most significant flag yet that the Trump administration has given us that they intend to turn this country into something few Americans could have imagined five years ago, into an autocracy, into a government of, by, and for a small number of rich people, an oligarchy, using the violence of the state to enforce their rule, which is called tyranny. This is apparently where we're at. The Trump administration is taking it to federal court to defend it. 
It's uh, breathtaking. So Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, is tweeting about how it took eight days for a member of her family to get a COVID test back. And during that time, that person, who it turns out was positive, they didn't know for eight days, that person infected three other people in their family. Had they simply known, they could have quarantined that person. Even Mick Mulvaney, you know, right-wing crazy, former Tea Party congressman, you know, acolyte of the Koch brother. Even Mick Mulvaney is saying this is unacceptable during a pandemic when his own kids couldn't get tested or one of his kids. The other one got tested and took seven days to get the results back. He says this is unacceptable. We've got a whole video about why this is, where the ideology that's driving, this is beyond incompetence. This is actually ideological. A new video out about this, you can find it over at TomHartman.com. Tom Harbin here with you. Tony Corbo is on the line. He's a senior lobbyist at Food and Water Watch's food campaign, Food and Water Watch A-N-D. Foodandwaterwatch.org is the website and Food A-N-D Water. Food and Water is the Twitter handle. Tony, welcome to the program. Um, it's okay for us to eat chickens that have cancer. Do I have that right? Well, that's, that's what the USDA has decided to do in granting a petition filed by the National Chicken Council. So why does the National Chicken Council feel it's important that Americans eat chickens who are infected with cancer? Well, they filed a petition on March the 1st, 2019, arguing that avian leukosis, which is a viral condition in poultry that causes tumors to appear on the skin of chickens and also in the various organs, is not a food safety issue and, in fact, the way that the USDA had wanted them to sample for leukosis was an undue burden on the industry. And so they filed a petition asking that the sampling regime be abolished and that if a chicken carcass appeared to have leukosis, all that needed to be done was to trim, to use a knife to eliminate the, the tumor. Up until now, if a chicken carcass had leukosis, the carcass would be condemned. The entire carcass would be condemned and removed from entering the food supply. Right. I mean, we know that there are viruses that cause cancer. Probably the most famous one for humans is the human papillomavirus, which causes uterine cancer and throat cancer and other kinds of cancer. So here we've got with chickens, a virus that is causing tumors. Is there a concern that this virus may be a human pathogen? Is this, I mean, is there a legitimate health concern here around this issue? Or is this more, oh, that's pretty grody, we're eating tumors? Well, I mean, the thing is that it's not as COVID is, you know, a zoonotic disease that can be transmitted from an animal to humans. But up right. until now, the USDA has considered leukosis to be a condition that is unwholesome. And so from a food safety standpoint, where you could contract a disease from eating chicken that had leukosis, no. But it is a gross condition. And so USDA, ever since the Poultry Products Inspection Act went into effect in, in 1957, this particular disease was considered to be unwholesome and carcasses had to be destroyed from entering the food supply. Is this virus starting to rip through? I mean, back in 1957, most chickens that were consumed by humans in the United States were probably grown on small family farms. This explosion of factory farming really, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it came out of the 1980s by and large, late 70s through the early 90s. And now basically most of our chicken is coming out of these giant factory farms, which are just like breeding pits. Is that is that what's happened here that, you know, you've, when you've got a million chickens in a facility and you've got an infectious virus that causes, you know, tumors that you just can't stop it. And so, hey, we, you know, America's just got to eat this stuff. You make a very valid point because of the way the farming has changed and we have these massive operations that, you know, once a virus makes it into a flock, it, it'll spread like wildfire. And so while there are vaccinations that can control this virus, it's not completely been eradicated. So what essentially the Chicken Council is saying, don't look for it anymore. 
even if you have chickens that are infected with this particular virus, it's okay because it's not a food safety concern. So we're going to allow sick chickens essentially to go onto our dinner tables. Right. You know, a large chunk of the animal products of the animals that we feed and slaughter in the United States are actually shipped overseas. China is the, the largest market. In fact, the largest pork producer in America, I believe it's Smithfield, is an entirely Chinese or a largely Chinese owned company. And at the time that Donald Trump was saying, oh, there's going to be a shortage of meat, and the industry was saying there's going to be a shortage of meat, they'd actually increased their exports uh, to China at the time. Is that the case with chicken as well? And is there going to be a backlash by foreign importers of U.S. chicken to this? I mean, is this something that could uh, you know, take a bite out of the industry or do they have some way around it? Uh, the Japanese in particular, I know, you know, American exports, they're very concerned about. No, it could very well impact our export markets. I mean, it's interesting that when the Poultry Products Inspection Act was passed by Congress in 1957, it explicitly said we have to remove unwholesome poultry from the food supply because it can impact the industry both domestically and for our export markets. Yeah, China has resumed importing poultry products from the United States, and it stopped for a while as part of the wonderful trade war that, that Trump started. But the poultry exports have resumed to China and to other markets. So this could have an impact on the export market. Yeah, it's remarkable stuff. Tony Corbo, he's with Food and Water Watch's food campaign, foodandwaterwatch.org is the website, and Food and Water is the uh, Twitter handle. Tony, thanks a lot for dropping by today. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. It's fascinating stuff. On the science revolution, Sonia Shaw, author of Pandemic, is here, and she says it's time to tell a new story about coronavirus. Our lives depend on it. Dr. Enric Sala with National Geographic tells us how the benefits of protecting 30% of the planet will outweigh the costs. Lily Eskelson-Garcia with the National Education Association, the NEA is dropping by. How is America going to protect our children as Trump and DeVos force them back into school? And Charlie Jang with Greenpeace USA is here about how a Green New Deal and the DNC will get along. Tune in wherever you find fine podcasts. This is just another variation on the same theme of the Trump administration being completely lawless, ignoring the Constitution, ignoring the law uh, repeatedly. These guys aren't just grifters. They have wandered into the or marched into the realm of basically something resembling anti-democratic, autocratic criminal conspiracy with regard to the way that they're running the government. It's mind boggling. Courtney Bubble is writing over at the government executive magazine, right? There's a magazine for people who are executives within the government. It's basically, you know. Uh, management level people in government agencies, federal, state, local, whatever it may be. Uh, their website for the magazine is govgovexec.com, govexec, as in government executive. And Courtney Bubel writes, the Trump administration has redacted the meeting minutes pertaining to its presidential transition activities. Now, presidential transition means, you know, January 20th, when it's time for Trump to leave the White House and Joe Biden to come into it, there's got to be a, you know, there's got to be a process there that lasts a couple of weeks, actually, where the people that Biden has named for his cabinet meet with the cabinet officers from the Trump administration. There's a handoff. The president, the vice president, the national security advisor, they go through that. We had Sandy Berger on this program years ago talking. This is right after, you know, George W. Bush became president, talking about how how uh, the Bill Clinton administration did this handoff to the George W. Bush administration and warned how he personally warned the incoming national security director at the Trump administration that, you know, look out for Osama bin Laden, how Al Gore specifically warned Dick Cheney of this, how President uh, Clinton specifically warned George W. Bush about this. And of course, they all blew it off. But nonetheless, they did it. The law was originally written in 1963. It was called the Presidential Transition Act. It was amended and tightened in 2015, called the Presidential Transitions Improvement Act. And it requires that the White House put together a team to make this happen and that they do it six months in advance of the transition. And that they have to plan that, you know, six months in advance of, of January 
20th would be what, July 20th? And so, you know, they have to report this out. And they had a meeting on May 27th to set this all up. And there's been no public announcements about it. So Government Executive Magazine sued them under the Freedom of Information Act and said, we want to see the notes, we want to see the agenda, we want to see what was done at that meeting. And so they sent a copy of the notes and the agenda back to the magazine, and everything was blacked out except for the headline. I mean, literally. The headline, there was one headline that said, key discussion items for the meeting, and then everything below that was blacked out. And then there was another headline that said, key action items for the meeting, and everything, everything below that was blacked out. This has never happened before. Something that we say a lot about this administration. But I think we're all legitimately concerned about what's going to happen in November, December, January. I mean, keep in mind, the 2000 election, the George W. Bush versus Al Gore election, that Al Gore actually won in Florida. You know, Al Gore won that election and he would have been president had the Supreme Court not intervened and stopped the recount in Florida. Which, by the way, the Florida Constitution called for. This was the federal government, the Supreme Court, overriding the Constitution of Florida in order to stop a recount so that George W. Bush could be president. Anyhow, we're looking at an administration that is just, you know, completely abandoned the rule of law. Meanwhile, foreign officials and transition experts were confused and surprised. Paul Light, the Goddard professor of public service at New York University, said it's shocking that there would be so many redactions. Meanwhile, there has been this motion filed by these 10 journalists and the ACLU here in Portland. They're going to have a hearing. They're seeking a temporary restraining order against these, the secret police here, the SS and the SA, who have shown up at, at, you know, to so-called protect the federal building. And on July 2nd, U.S. District Judge uh, Michael Simon ruled that journalists and professional, with professional or authorized press passes, are exempt from Portland police orders requiring protesters to leave. In other words, if you're an actual journalist with a real press pass and you're identified as such, you don't have to leave when they start shooting the tear gas and saying, get out of here. Because the press, I mean, this is a federal judge said it's okay. The judge directed the police not to arrest, threaten, or threaten to arrest or use force against person who, quote, they know or reasonably should know is a journalist or legal observer. Officers are not allowed to seize their cameras, their audio videotaping equipment, or their press passes. And yet, these federal officers, or at least that's what we're told they are, have been shooting at press people and have hit several of them. This is insane, what's going on here in Portland. And it's coming to a town near you. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. 
It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're reading today from Truth in Our Times by David E. McCraw. Deputy General Counsel of the New York Times, the uh, number two lawyer for the New York Times. This is in chapter one, titled Election Day. It opens with a, a tweet from Donald Trump. The failing New York Times has been wrong about me from the very beginning. Said I would lose the primaries on the general election. Fake news. November 8, 2016. At 10 p.m., I made one last circuit of the newsroom. Our CEO, Mark Thompson, stood near the political desk, looking on with his wife and a small group of others connected somehow to the Times. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan remained in doubt, but the reality was sinking in. Donald Trump was on the verge of winning the American presidency. I'd been in newsrooms on election nights before. I know how it's supposed to be. The only thing that ever mattered was the horse race, think Gore Bush, or the historic moment, think Obama-McCain. There was no investment in which candidate was winning. He or she was destined to disappoint in the long run. And the dominant emotion was a certain not-quite-cynical detachment amid the electric buzz of the vote count and projections and the anticipation of relief that the endless push of the campaign was finally over. Sure, you couldn't ignore the victories or the big picture moments and the day after stories would be celebratory in their way, duly restrained but with a nod to victory itself, not unlike the next day account of a Super Bowl game or Game 7 of the World Series. Capture the triumph for a night or relish the race too close to call. Leave the dancing and crying for others, for the believers. But this night was like no other election night. There had been an investment, not just journalistic, but spiritual. Donald Trump had campaigned not just against Hillary Clinton, but also against the New York Times and the American press, the mainstream American press. And his astonishing rise to the top of the Republican Party had been built on his near-daily attacks on facts, on the very idea that facts matter. For journalists who approach truth like a secular religion and who have seen a thousand times before how a single true story could gut the political career of a lying politician. It had been a year of faith-shaking disbelief. A line had not just been crossed, but obliterated. The shock was palpable as the numbers came in, laced for some with the fading hope for a different outcome among people who generally wanted nothing more than a story worth telling. And there was still a paper to put out, a reckoning to account for. It was too much on an already long night. I slipped away. At the elevators, I ran into Sue Craig and a guy who was obviously not from the Times. Sue had broken one of the biggest stories of the campaign. She was the one who went to her mailbox one day in September and found pages from Donald Trump's tax returns in an envelope. She introduced me to her acquaintance. He had once worked for Trump. I didn't ask why he was there. Like me, Sue had decided to get away. It's too weird here, she said. We all got on the elevator. Sue, who had written a devastating story about Trump, me, whose letter to Trump's lawyers had lit up the internet for a week in October, and one of Trump's guys. We rode in silence, a strange tableau on the strangest night of the year. Fourteen hours earlier, as I came into the building, the Times security guard had called me over. 
They wanted to make sure I knew about the plans for the next morning. In the quirky ways that things happened at the times, I had become the lawyer to see for all the things that security guys encountered, from the intruder who pilfered women's shoes to the anonymous letter weaponized with razor blades. The Times was printing thousands of extra newspapers, and tables were going to be set up outside for all the people who would be showing up to buy the New York Times for posterity's sake. The headline, I later learned, was going to read, Madam President. <clears throat> We'd been caught flat-footed eight years earlier when Barack Obama had made history. By the time I arrived for work early in the morning of the 2008 election, the line was already starting to snake down the sidewalk. Soon there were hundreds of Obama supporters who thought, and why wouldn't they, that the place to buy a copy of the New York Times was surely at the New York Times. Lots of things happened at the Times building. Selling newspapers is not one of them. Employees were pressed into emergency duty to cart bundles of newspapers from the Times printing plant in Queens, and the long lines outside the building stretched on into the afternoon. But it was Obama's victory in 2012 that was on my mind this morning. I vote in a neighborhood that is predominantly black and middle class. In 2012, following a drumbeat of stories about how Republicans hoped to suppress voter turnout, I walked into my polling place at a local school eight minutes after it opened. The line already extended back to the schoolhouse door. Did y'all sleep here, a guy wanted to know as he stepped into the foyer? Uh, this morning in 2016, I had arrived before dawn. I was the only one in line at my precinct's table. That all seemed like a strangely distant memory as midnight approached. I had made my escape from the building with Sue and the Trump guy. At home, I sat alone in the glow of the TV screens as the states that mattered fell into place for the Republicans. I turned it off. Donald Trump was about to become president of the United States. The next morning, in a light drizzle on a gray November day, the newspaper sales tables were set up outside the building as planned. No one stopped. The vendors sat idly amid the stacks. There was no Madam President front page. Instead, the headline read, Trump triumphs. And the first two paragraphs of the lead story talked about how the vote threatened convulsions throughout the country and made an early mention of those who had watched with alarm the rise of Trump. His victory represented a certain kind of hope that change was going to come at last. Truth in Our Times by David McCraw. Today is, uh, as often as usual, Congressman Mark Pocan, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the Big Cheese Progressive in Washington, D.C., with us taking your calls. Congressman Pocan also represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin. His website is pocan, P-O-C-A-N.house.gov, and you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. And Congressman, welcome back. What's, uh, what's on the top of your mind and the top of your list for, the, uh, for this week? And are you in D.C. or are you in, uh, in Madison, back in Wisconsin? No, I am in D.C. It's been a busy period. Uh, the last couple of weeks I was in D.C. Uh, doing um, appropriations committee work. Now we have the full House back in this week, next week, and I think possibly the next week, uh, doing the appropriation bills, the national defense authorization, um, the, the water bill next week, um, a number of bills. Uh, this week and next week we have five-day weeks. And then uh, what the big issue is, is we're still waiting for the Senate to come to any agreement, uh, another COVID package. You know, it's been over two months ago. We passed the HEROES Act. Uh, people are hurting. Frontline protect uh, workers need protections. This week, unemployment runs out. The extension, the extra $600, even though the deadline was July 31st, UI runs Saturday to Saturday. So in every single state, the last week is this week for people to get that extended benefit. There's other things that have to happen. State and local governments need money, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, unfortunately, we're, we're seeing a very slow response from the Senate. When Mitch McConnell was asked if this would be done by the end of next week, he just laughed and said, no, I don't find this a laughing matter. One of the things that Louise and Sean and I and Nate, kind of the four of us, organized this show from day to day, have been talking about doing, we've had a hard time finding the person that we want to do it with, is to get a Republican on and ask them the simple question, how will the Republican Party reinvent itself post-Trump? I mean, the Republican Party back in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s actually had some principles, uh, wanted to defend the environment and consumers and things like that, uh, was in favor of union rights. They just were not as 
gung-ho for all that stuff as the Democrats, by and large. And now they've just gone nuts. You're talking about Republicans in the Senate saying that they don't want to extend unemployment benefits or the expanded unemployment benefits. They don't want money going to schools for COVID. They don't, you know, all these things that they don't want. Is there a governing ideology behind all that? Are these Republicans proclaiming that there's a reason for this? Because, hey, it says that in Article 3 of the Constitution. Or, hey, we believe that we're upholding the values that Thomas Jefferson wrote about in his letter to Lafayette. Or is this just complete BS? Is this just complete, you know, own the libs or some bizarre Fox News thing of, you know, this is how authoritarians do it. Or Donald Trump told us to. What the hell's going on there, sir? Yeah, Tom, you know, your question is the question I raise all the time. I mean, other than Mitt Romney, who's going to be around to rebuild the Republican Party after this year? Because, you know, this has become a cult of Donald Trump, not a political party. And with the devolution of the Republican Party with the Tea Party, which really, again, don't forget, was founded on racism. Go figure, just like Donald Trump is founded on racism. I think we're finding the common problem we're having with the Republican Party right now. In the last 10 years, you know, there's been this people who don't believe in the role of government running for office so they can run government, which, again, is a bit illogical. Now we have the rise of QAnon. A couple of people who've won Republican primaries for Congress are QAnon followers who will be coming very likely to Congress. So there is a huge devolution. Uh, it's because you know, the reason I got so mad at Paul Ryan last session was he let he just gave the car keys to Donald Trump when I knew he was better and smarter than that. And now you watch them not even try to pretend like they have consternation when when this is happening. They just completely uh, jump to it because Donald Trump otherwise put out a mean tweet and somehow that's going to affect them. So this is not based on an ideology that is, is anything we know of traditional republicanism, but it's on an ideology that is just this devolution from uh, the Republican Party to the Tea Party to now QAnon and whatever the, the hell Donald Trump is, uh, is where they're at, which is why it's really hard to make a cognitive argument for the, the issues that they don't advocate for. Yeah, it's it's like it's become the Republican Party of crazed right-wing internet conspiracy and, and right-wing radio. Okay, let's pick up some phone calls here. Kino in Lakeland, Florida. Kino, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Kino is our regular friendly Republican here. Kino, go for it. Yes, I'm the moose herder Republican and to honor Teddy Roosevelt. And on Lawrence O'Donnell, George Will said that the Republican Party has become a gangster regime. And uh, so I definitely uh, oppose the current Republican Party agenda, and I look to uh, John Huntsman to possibly be a leader for reform. But here's what I want to ask. I've got a 96-year-old friend. She's a retired college professor, and she is more worried about our democracy than she has seen in her whole lifetime. She wants—I told her I'd— possibly get a chance to talk with a congressman, she says, can you give us an assurance that the Biden campaign and the Democratic Party has a group working on contingency plans for shenanigans by the Trump team? Now, you know, airline pilots have a book. If they go into an emergency, the navigator can grab it and and so on. Does the Democratic Party and the Biden campaign have a group working on uh, uh, any kind of possible reactions as much as possible, thinking of uh, things that uh, Trump can do to subvert our election? Can you assure her that uh, there is a group working on contingency plans to deal with shenanigans and and subversion by the Trump team? We got it. We got it. And I'm interrupting him because if I could just add one thing here, Government Executive Magazine is reporting that under the Presidential Transitions Improvement Act, the Trump administration is required six months out from the transition, you know, January 20th, they're required to put together a group, a working group to handle the transition to the next president. And they're required to report this to Congress and to the people. And they filed a Freedom of Information Act for what they did because their meeting was on May 27th. And what they got back was completely redacted. The Trump administration is refusing to say that they even have plans for a transition to the next president. To you, Congressman. We have a minute to the break. That one's new info, uh, Tom. But on the other, I can't tell you, you know, here are the individuals that are working on this. But clearly, 
Yeah, this is in in common media now conversation about this. And just in the interview with Fox News with Chris Wallace, the president's still playing this coy game about answering the question. So, um, you know, people are looking at everything and and rest assured uh, it won't come as a surprise to the DNC or the Biden campaign. I think the only advice I might offer to Kino is, you know, I know he's talking about John Huntsman, you know, look forward too. I mean, you know, I, I sometimes we look back all the time at people to try to resurrect, you know, maybe their party, but there's got to be some other voices that they can uh, go to that are newer voices in the Republican Party to make this a party that actually is a political party and not a cult, because unfortunately, too many of their folks have been complicit. It's going to be hard for them to really pivot and and move forward. So, you know, maybe Keno can be one of those leaders in Florida, but we're going to need to see people step up and and really, you know, want to have a political party that works. Yeah. Judy in Denver, Colorado. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, thank you. The post office is in big trouble, and they're asking for help. They've asked for $75 million, I believe. How about, instead of that, in the bill, put in to completely remove and end the $5 billion that the post office has to pay in to this pension plan, and they receive half of that money back because it's almost $80 billion that they've put into this plan over 14 years. Yeah, Judy, first of all, that's $25 billion they're asking for. We put that in the HEROES Act because obviously the post office has to continue. But also we should be going back after that money because leaving that just sitting there is ridiculous for repaying benefits 75 years into the future. And it could be used for other things that would be uh, more beneficial. So I think you could do both. Also, I did see an article today, and I'm not going to be uh, profess to be an expert on it, but I saw in the, I believe it was the Intercept this morning, or it might have been some Ryan Grimm tweeted, that said there's new directive with this new person who's in charge of the post office that if they don't get to something in the morning, don't go back to it later in the day, make it wait till the next day. So they're trying to actually make the service worse to help make their case, I think, to try to privatize it. And it's brand new information, but we're going to have to get to the bottom of that. Yeah, that's Starve the Beast 101 right out of the Reagan administration. Mick in Seattle, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning, gentlemen. I have to ask you this. It's on my mind a lot. The people that are picking our crops, they're being prevented from doing it. Therefore, the farmers are allowing their crops to rot. Uh, My question to the congressman is, please tell me that the children were released due to the coronavirus from the detention centers? Um, Mick, those are kind of unrelated issues in the sense that, let me answer it this way because I think this is what your actual question is, is we have not seen serious changes from ICE at all. In fact, we've still seen continued bad ICE behavior and uh, quite honestly, Homeland Security as a department behavior when it comes to immigration. So no, they haven't suddenly found a conscience because uh, of what's going on and it's a real problem. To the other, you didn't ask it, but let me just offer it up. One of the things we are doing through the Department of Agriculture is buying a lot of additional agricultural goods for food pantries, et cetera, and not as much as we'd like to, but they're doing some work around that so we don't have as much wasted product. But no, you know, Homeland Security is an agency that uh, needs serious, serious reform. And I think, you know, one of the things that we need out of a Biden administration more than anything is bringing humanity back to that agency. There was a piece in the Washington Post a few months ago that Trump was essentially using ICE as his private uh, police force, that they're they're somehow out of the chain of command. Are you familiar with that? We've been saying that for years, that that's the problem. Uh He is using it as as his own police force to try to keep the racism argument in in the media. Right. Amazing. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls from the Tom Hartman program. We'll be back with more of your calls for Congressman Pocan. In just a moment, stick around. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. But what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are, too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. So we've got a new video up over at TomHartman.com. There's a really troubling concatenation of events that are happening in the United States right now. We created these concentration camps for refugees seeking asylum. This was Stephen Miller's big project. And we've got concentration camps for children, concentration camps for male adults, concentration camps for female adults. And now we've got this virus sweeping through the United States and people are starting to die in these concentration camps, which has provoked ICE to, uh, or whoever's running them, to deport hundreds of the children back to the countries that they came from without their parents, which is mind-boggling, and in many cases carrying disease. This is serious stuff and we need to be talking about it. The new video is over at TomHartman.com. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls. And Alexis in Brookline, Massachusetts, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, my question is about the extra unemployment benefits that were extended to gig workers or like my husband who works for a religious nonprofit. Are those protections going to still be available throughout this pandemic, uh, even for getting, you know, statewide uh, unemployment benefits? And what about beyond the pandemic? Alexis, if you're still on, is she still on, Tom? I just have one follow-up. Oh, I'm sorry. She, I just dropped her. Okay. Then I'll just answer it two different ways, uh, with a little extra information perhaps. So there's two things. One is the PUA, the Pandemic Unemployment Insurance, which affects small business owners and independent contractors and the such. And it sound, almost sounded like she might have been asking about that. That will continue, I want to say, till the end of the year, but it does continue beyond this July 31st deadline. What's in question is the surge money, I call it, the extended unemployment, the additional $600 a week that was available to anyone on un regular unemployment or pandemic unemployment. That ends 731, but because that's a Friday, 
and 49 out of 50 states uh, run Saturday to Saturday for their unemployment, and the other one runs Sunday to Sunday, means this week is the last week anyone will get that benefit. Now, we've had a number of conversations mm-hmm. with Speaker Pelosi about this. I think at the end of the day, when there's a package, there will be additional amount still for how long, I don't know. I think the amount might be smaller than 600. We're still fighting for 600, but we should have those answers in this next bill, absolutely, and hopefully in the next week or two. John in Long Beach, Mississippi, you're on the air with Congressman Pokin. Yes, hi. Okay. Uh, Tom Holtman, oh, I appreciate you. you taking my call. The deregulation was taking place during the Ronald Reagan's administration, but now during the Trump administration, he's recently, I believe, uh, they passed a bill that allowed the corporate world not to pay taxes at all, just to pass on their profits on, on to their employees. And you know who the employees are going to be, the CEOs. So can you clarify some of that and let me know exactly what is going on there? Yeah, John, I think you might have it a little mixed up. I mean, so yes, they're doing a lot of additional deregulation. I think the president said for every new regulation, they'll take away two others. And that's been his directive to agencies. And they did pass a giant tax break bill now a couple of years back, two and a half years ago, where um, almost all the money will go to the, the top 1%. We'll get about 83 or 86%. I'm forgetting it off the top of my head of all the money that, that they gave within a decade. But there's nothing that I know of that directly says you don't have to pay taxes and you can just put it back into payroll or something. But there was a giant tax break for the wealthiest, and that did cost trillions of dollars to this country, several trillion dollars. Kathy in Madison, Wisconsin, you're on the air with Congressman Pokin. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you for taking my call. I'm calling about under the Occupational Safety and Health Act, there's a provision called the General Duty provision, which requires employers to provide safe workplaces. You don't need special regulations, particularly for COVID. It's a mess anyway. What I would like to see, and Mark, I I hope uh, um, you can persuade others in the party there, is to for the uh, Democrats to get out and talk about these things, that workers do have a right to refuse unsafe work. They have a right to collect unemployment if the workplaces aren't safe. There's, There's a whole lot of stuff out there. And have you guys talked about that, the general duty provision, how they can get OSHA to step up the plate or at least get some information out to people so they know what their rights are? Yeah, Kathy, uh, and thanks for calling in. You're one of my constituents. I appreciate that. You're right, and generally we have talked about that. The problem is we also think there should be some extra protections for folks, and we've been saying it for months, things like masks, which now, you know, because of local ordinances where Kathy and I live, Tom, we have a mask mandate in our county, but, but we don't in the state of Wisconsin. So at least people are protected if you live in Wisconsin as an employee, but you are not if you live in another county, which is pretty ridiculous. And um, we still need to have more protections for frontline and essential workers, more explicit protections than I think would even fall under the general duty clause that Kathy's bringing up. But you're right. I mean, there still are worker protections, period. So people can't get away with abuses, per se. But I think we're not just talking about uh, standard abuses. We're talking about just safe practices for people who, unfortunately, are showing higher propensity to get COVID while they're still taking care of all of us many of whom don't have to have the same risk in our jobs. Isn't with his executive order about opening meat plants, didn't he overrule that OSHA rule? And aren't they generally refusing to enforce the OSHA regulations? Well, they've been forgetting, they've been refusing to regulate many regulations, right? And that's part of why they have this liability protection. Also, they're trying to push in a COVID bill, which we're pushing back against. Yeah. Okay, good. (laughs) I mean, you know, not good that they're doing that, but good that you're pushing back on it. Hey, we're putting together a series of American history books. It started with a hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. Then we had the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America. Then the hidden history of the Republican war on voting. Coming out soon is the hidden history of monopolies, how big business destroyed the American dream. And then next spring, it's gonna be the hidden history of oligarchy and tyranny. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls. Jim in Elkhart, Indiana. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Mr. Pocan. Hi, Tom. Thank you for taking my call. Hey, Jim. I've been uh, watching what's going on in Portland with these unidentified agents and uh, the threat of sending agents to other cities. And 
what's occurred to me is uh, these local authorities, mayors, uh, governors, uh, I, I, I was wondering why they cannot arrest these unidentified agents in their cities. If they're there illegally, which is all I've heard, why could they not just have them removed from the streets? Thank you. Yeah, Jim, I don't have a good definitive answer other than I've seen the comments from a number of mayors who are uh, condemning these actions. I don't know if it's as simple as what they're doing is illegal. Uh, There's probably some uh, strange justification Trump's using with little asterisks that lets him to get away with it. The bottom line is it's not um, smart uh, to have officials come into a city without permission and do this sort of work um, because they're supposed to notify local law enforcement, et cetera. But the the unmarked part uh, I think may be the questionable part that uh, certainly we have to go after. I just don't know if that local mayor has that jurisdiction to do that. Douglas in Dooley, Arizona, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, Congressman, yeah, all the things I've seen passed in the stimulus package, how come nobody's ever brought up cutting interest rates on credit cards when you know people are out of work and running up debt on these credit cards? Yeah, um, that's a good point. I haven't actually heard that brought up. And, you know, with usually those rates are somewhat linked, and I say somewhat in a very loose sense, to where the current interest rates are at, which are very low. But you're right, cards are still 18-plus percent, uh, which is considerably more than the current rate. You know, I would say first let's deal with the, the root issue, which is let's just not put people to the point they have to put things on credit cards. If you're unemployed and you're getting that $600 extra per week, that helps most people get up to that average income of 48000 and, and have things covered for them. That's why that money is so very important and why we're fighting so hard to make sure that that continues beyond this week, uh, which is when it ends. So, uh, again, I think, you know, so often I've looked at this as let's solve it with, you know, I appreciated Pramila Jayapal's paycheck not guaranteed. It's not protection. It's another word I'm forgetting, but the Paycheck Guarantee Bill, which essentially is what they do in Canada and Germany and England and Denmark and other places where uh, you help the employer keep people on payroll so that you don't even have to have unemployment or food assistance because people are still working. If we do that, then we don't have to worry about credit card debt and other things. So I think let's deal with it up front. The best way to do that, at least, is continue the additional payments on unemployment. And let's also continue to help small businesses who have decreased demand at no fault of their own, especially restaurants, bars, meeting planning, uh, tourism, et cetera. Noel in Bristol, Tennessee, you're on the air with Congressman Pokin. Good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. I used to be a Wisconsin resident, the ah. old Wisconsin. Uh, in Oshkosh, uh, missing the air venture this week. My question is uh, more of a global question. It's about what are we doing to harden the electrical system in our country? We are vulnerable to an EMP uh, attack or even from Mother Nature, a CME, a coronal mass ejection, as we had uh, in 1869, which basically took out all the the few electronics we had on the on the planet at that time. I understand that this issue has been rejected by Senator Murkowski three times, the funding to harden our electrical grid. And I want to know if I'm out of date or if it's, is it on anyone's agenda? Thank you. Thank yeah, Noel, a good question. I don't know if I have a great answer for you, especially with in, in regards to Senator Mikowski's objections. I can tell you we did just pass a large infrastructure bill that would expand everything from uh, broadband and uh, uh, different types of energy to people across the country, uh, as well as building roads and bridges and schools and uh, water delivery systems, et cetera. But you know, even though for all Donald Trump's talk about wanting to invest in infrastructure, we've seen no action back from the Republicans. Congressman, we have a little over 30 seconds. Uh, Thoughts on the coming week? You know, we're in session both in the House and Senate. You should be reaching out to your member of the House or Senate about the next COVID package. Tell them to pass the HEROES Act. While we still need to do some tweaks to it, that is the the singular best bill that incorporates most of what we've talked about that we need to do for people who are facing the coronavirus. And, uh, you know, also uh, good news, uh, Tom, the fact that you did amazingly well in some ratings recently. I just want to say congratulations to you and your listeners. Um, I'm so glad to be a part of this program. Yeah, thank you. We're uh, we're the eighth largest talk show in the country, and uh, the number one progressive show. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, that's yeah, fantastic. It's, it's, yeah, we were number ten last year. Congressman Pocan, thanks so much for dropping by, and thanks for the acknowledgement. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, and thanks to everybody. Take care. 
We're reading today from Justin Frank, Dr. Justin Frank's book, Trump on the Couch, Inside the Mind of the President. He's the guy who wrote Bush on the Couch and Obama on the Couch. He's a psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. This is from the introduction. There's no question that Trump is mentally unfit in ways that make him psychologically unsuited for the presidency. That in itself is a truly alarming turn of events. And I'd write the entire book in all caps if I thought that would better convey the sense of urgency with which it is written and should be read. Any number of troubling mental illness diagnoses and character evaluations can be and have been accurately applied to Trump. Both can vary from analyst to analyst, however, without necessarily sacrificing any of the accuracy. More to the point, the true value of a diagnosis is to determine an appropriate course of treatment, and there's no indication that any sort of treatment is a viable option. Trump on the Couch then seeks not simply to make the case that Trump is not well, but rather to show how he is unwell in ways that would have been of particular interest to the applied psychoanalysts whose investigation likely preceded our own, the Russians, and perhaps even their American allies or counterparts, who in the long tradition of intelligence gathering examined Trump's psyche and found an opportunity for exploitation. Trump's presidency caps a lifetime of dysfunction and disorder that is not likely to be healed while he is in office. Just as Trump's ascendancy among voters gives expression to long-standing trends in the American electorate's psyche that are not going to be easily addressed. However, if we can identify certain aspects of these disorders and trends that may have contributed to Trump and his voters fusing into a shared belief system, then we have a better chance of fostering the kind of honest cultural discussion that will be necessary in order to contain and repair the damage that has already been done. Understanding Trump calls for a consideration of his psychodynamics almost certainly more rigorous than he has ever embarked upon on his own. Trump dismissed psychotherapy as a crutch in his 2004 Playboy interview. Years later, talking to biographer Michael D'Antonio, he described in greater detail a generalized aversion to introspection beyond the therapeutic setting. Quote, I don't like to analyze myself because I might not like what I see, he told D'Antonio. I don't like to analyze myself. I don't like to think too much about the past, end of quote. Even armed with a detailed family history, we can't capture Trump in action with only the tools of applied psychoanalysis. Like some of the most disturbed patients I've worked with, Trump is so erratic, constantly changing the topic, elevating the stakes, and raising the volume, that one doesn't know what to expect from him next. It's hard to imagine him in treatment. Even as the subject of applied psychoanalytical investigation, he behaves like a patient who is simultaneously banging in a consulting room window, rattling on its door, ringing the phone, and texting or tweeting his demands for attention. Trump presents so many troubling affects that it's hard to remember them all. In the final weeks of the first year of Trump's presidency, Michael Wolff and David K. Johnston published accounts of the Trump White House that present a president with a startling number of disturbing characteristics. Any one of these demonstrable and suspected traits would raise calls for a psychoanalytic investigation if it was done on a layperson. In a president, in aggregate, they are truly cause for alarm. The list of worrisome evident and alleged attributes that emerge in these and other portraits is long. Narcissist, liar, racist, sexist, adulterer, baby, hypocrite, chiseler, tax cheat, outlaw, psychopath, paranoid, fraud, ignorant, vengeful, delusional, arrogant, greedy, contemptuous, unsympathetic, learning disabled, cruel, obstructor of justice, threat to the Constitution, traitor. The list is so long that it can be overwhelming. It's a challenge to remember the beginning by the time you make it to the end. There are times when I wish someone would help us remember all the troubling aspects of Trump's character and behavior, past and present, in a way that would encourage recognition of the totality of his pathology rather than its component parts, which individually cause alarm before being temporarily forgotten when the next emergency presents itself. As an applied psychoanalyst, my task is not only to appreciate the full list, but also to ignore the big picture and focus on a single pathology at a time. Practitioners of applied psychoanalysis approach their subject as both theoretician and clinician. The theoretician endeavors to piece things together, to figure things out, while the clinician tries to approach each session capable of being surprised, as if his mind were a blank slate. The analysis in the following pages aspires to accomplish both goals. 
reviewing Trump's record with a clinician's eye, preparing to be surprised by the unexpected observation, and assembling these findings into a more comprehensive portrait. The image of hypothetical patient Trump rattling the consulting room door and banging on the window reminds us that President Trump doesn't want us to see the entire list at once. Not only that, but patients I've treated who are reminiscent of Trump cannot tolerate being inside the consulting room either. They leave my office whenever they feel unable to think their way through in an anxiety-provoking interpretation, much the way Trump leaves press briefings when the questions get too close. Trump on the Couch by Justin Frank. Hey, Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that we have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day, Sue, who works on our newsletter, puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's something I think you'll find really useful. So check it out at TomHartman.com. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 